Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad y'all are here. Thankful the air is working well and uh, we can relax and enjoy an opportunity to look at God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Uh, I've been excited about preaching Daniel chapter 5 all week. And so uh, now that it's finally here, I'm even more excited. This morning, uh, we're going to look at another reminder that's going to show us some of the things that we've already seen uh, through this book so far. We're going to see God's power and strength, how much greater it is than anyone else's. We're going to see the importance that we recognize Him for who He is and not mistakenly think that we're most important. If y'all would, let's begin by looking at the first four verses to see the setting for today. Daniel 5.1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here in, in these first four verses in the setting, we see several notable things. I want to make sure that, that we're all aware of on the same page with. The first thing that's pretty notable is there's a new king that we see here. There's been a succession in Babylon uh, up to this point, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we said King Nebuchadnezzar. We said Nebuchadnezzar over and over and over. And now we begin with Belshazzar. This, uh, this is a new king. Uh, there are going to be times in Daniel 5 that, that Belshazzar is referred to as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or that Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as the father. But it's not in the direct way that it's his biological son. It's in the sense of a forefather. So uh, these two were not father and son. Actually, probably 20-something years have passed between the end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 5. So that's something to make note of. Here, uh, if you want to picture in your mind, I know some of you are very visual people, and so you want to kind of picture what's going on. If you want to picture in this narrative what's happening, you would. the opening scene here is it's a banquet hall. There's a huge banquet hall, and there are tables, and they're filled with food, and there are a thousand Really important people there. These are the nobles, these are the, the leaders, and they're all here and they're drinking all the wine they want. They would have had all the food that they want in the king and, and all of the most noble people are sitting at the head table. And so that's the picture of this huge party, if you will. And then while they're in the party and the party's going on and everybody's enjoying themselves, the king makes a declaration in front of everyone and calls and says, Bring out the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. And I want us for just a moment to, to talk about what these are. When he says, go get those vessels, what is it that he's talking about? This, whenever you go back to Daniel chapter 1 or 2 Chronicles or 2 Kings, whenever God sent Nebuchadnezzar over to Jerusalem, right, and he comes in and the army surrounds the city of Jerusalem and they besiege it and they take all the people prisoners. Well, one thing that they did is they went in and the temple in Jerusalem, so this is the temple uh, in the capital city of God's people. This is the temple where God's presence had been. 
they had a treasury. And in the treasury, they had lots of really important vessels and things of gold and silver that were worth a lot. And these were set aside. These were special or holy things that were for God's people. And in there, there were some golden goblets, if you will. And so the king says at this party, go get those golden goblets and bring them out. And let's drink wine out of those here at the party. Now, what you have to recognize with this is it's not just, okay, so they went and got them. Uh, I, in the first service this morning, I, I gave the idea. Some of you might at least start to wrap your mind around this when you were growing up or maybe at your house now. Uh, there, were, there were different types of china at the house. There were the everyday plates, and then there was uh, Grandma's crystal, right? And, and so if Mom walks in and it's just a regular day and the kids are eating lunch or a picnic outside and they have the crystal out or the china out, Mama's not going to be happy, right? These things were set aside. They weren't for common purposes. These weren't to just be used in the way that the king was using them. And he knew that. The way that he's doing this, he's making a spectacle of it. And of course, if you think that regular plates and the china plates is a difference, this is a whole nother level because these are the things of God that have been set aside by God that the king says, go and get. And let's use them for a common purpose. And, and one of the historians that I read this week named John Collins said that in this day and time, this would have been an outrageous thing to do even among the pagan people. Even lost pagan people wouldn't have taken holy special vessels from another religion or another cult and just used them in an everyday purpose like this. This was an extremely outrageous thing that the king was doing. And not only does he do that, not only does he say, go get them and let's just, I'll give them to my concubines and to my wives and we'll just drink wine out of them like they're just regular everyday cups. But even more than that, they use them, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're using the goblets out of God's temple treasury to toast to some idols that they worship. And so this would have been like spitting in the face of God, is what Belshazzar is doing here. Point one, King Belshazzar intentionally provoked God. So I want you to say that's what's happening here. The king is doing this. There are some extra biblical sources, Jewish historians that tell us that maybe this entire banquet was for this purpose. Uh, that, they had, that they had calculated the days that Jeremiah had prophesied that Babylon would fall and this is past that. And, and so the entire banquet may have been for the purpose of saying, look, Babylon has proved that we're stronger than God. We, don't, we can't know that for sure, but we do know this, that the king is flippantly using the things of God in common purposes to worship idols. And he is trying to set himself up as being stronger and better than the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't over-exaggerate to you how bad of a decision this was, how intentionally he was trying to provoke God here. Daniel, a little bit later, we're going to see him saying to Belshazzar, you have lifted yourself up against the God of heaven, right? So he is trying to put himself uh, as if he is equal with God, and King Belshazzar is intentionally looking for a fight with God, which sounds like a terrible thing to do, and he's going to recognize that very quickly, because look with me in verse 5 what happens next. 
Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So, again, this is something you have to really try to imagine. Right, they're sitting there and the king says, bring out the goblets and they get the goblets and they put wine. Cheers to the you know, God of the statue of gold. And immediately says, while that's happening, over on the wall, in front of everyone in this large banquet hall, there appears a hand as if it's ghostly, just appears out of nowhere, a human hand, and it's writing something on the wall. So this is something that you can only picture if you have a good, vivid imagination. But that's what's going on here. And again, the translation doesn't do justice here to what happens to the king. This king, it says that it, it, the wording here, it says that his knees knocked together. But I love if you have a King James version, uh, it tells you that his knees smote one another. Uh, and it's the idea, right, we see that as a biblical word. You would smite somebody, right? And that's like a good smack. And so it's not like his knees. He's like, look. It's his knees were smiting one another. And it's, it, all the color goes out of his face. And here in the ESV, it says his limbs gave way. And this is one of my favorite good explanations here to really help you see what's going on with the king. Because it gets a little bit closer in the King James Version. It says the joints of his loins were loosened. But in the original language, it's even a little bit better. It says the knots of his loins were loosened. So it doesn't mean in the original sense that his legs gave out. What it means, what does it mean for the, the knots of your loins to loosen? I'm almost certain that it means that he lost control of his bowels. If you know what I'm saying. I don't want to go into any more detail. So the king, right, Belshazzar sets himself up. I'm as great as God. Bring out God's fancy things and I'll use them for common purposes. I'll spit in the face of this God of Daniel. He's nobody to me. And in one moment, he sees the handwriting on the wall and his face turns white and his knees start to knock together and he uses the bathroom on himself and all of a sudden, everything has changed. And the king says, go get everybody that you can find that Mike can read this. Go get the wise men, go get the enchanters, go get the astrologers, right? People that study stars, go get them because maybe they can read. He says, he yells loudly, verse 7 tells us, go get them. Because he's scared to death of what's happening here. And all of a sudden we start to see the difference in mighty men and a mighty God. And so... None of them, we've seen this several times through the book, nobody, right? They all come in and nobody knows what it means. Nobody can read it. Nobody can interpret it. And the queen at that point steps in and says to Belshazzar, listen, there's a man named Daniel. And whenever Nebuchadnezzar was king, Nebuchadnezzar made this Daniel chief of the wise men. And he was able to interpret things like this. And you think, how did Belshazzar not know about Daniel? But 
Again, it's probably been 20-something years since Nebuchadnezzar has passed. And Daniel was an old man at this point. We don't know exactly how old. He's probably in his late 70s somewhere, which is really old at this point in time. And so he says, go get Daniel. And he speaks in a way that shows he's not, probably not real confident in this old man and what he's going to do. He, he speaks lowly of him. He says, you're, when he comes in, you're Daniel. You're that Daniel. You're one of the exiles. Then in verses 16 and 17, we see the exchange. Verse 16 is the king speaking. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, he doesn't sound real confident. If you could do it, I would give you all these things. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel comes in here. I want to stop for just a moment because it's easy to get lost in this narrative. Uh, and sometimes we, we want to stick just at the chapter that we're looking at and really see here. But I want you to see what's happening here and the picture of the whole scope of Daniel. Because sometimes it's good to see it as, large, as a larger part of the narrative. In just a little bit we'll see this as part of the entire Bible. But, but here we see the fifth time, at least the fifth time, that something like this has happened where no man could do it. There was something that no man could understand or no man was strong enough to do it. And nobody could be found anywhere able to do something. And God was able to do it with great ease. It's no big deal. It's not hard for him. He would either use Daniel or he'd use Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to send a message or he would do something on his own. But we saw in chapter 1 that he made his people stronger and wiser with less food and less training. Right? All, the thing, all of the things that the king had to pour into people made them this strong and this fit and this smart. And God, using less food and less training, was able to make his people this strong and this smart. And in chapter 2, we saw there was the dream, the first dream that the king had, and no one could interpret it. And God sends interpretation through Daniel. No problem. It's not a big deal. He's the one that sent the dream anyways. In chapter 3, we see something no man can do. The king says, Who, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will deliver you out of my hands? And he throws them in the fiery furnace, and God protects them from the fire. Doesn't bother them. They come out. They don't even smell like smoke. Chapter 4, we see that, that both there's another dream that no one could interpret, but God gives the interpretation to Daniel. And then it continues, and in chapter 4, he also makes the strongest king of the largest nation in the world lose his mind and go crazy and insane and, and crawl around like a donkey and eat grass until the point that he remembered who was truly in charge and humbled himself before God. And then here in chapter 5, God sends a ghost-like hand out of nowhere to write a message on a wall. I've never seen anybody else do that. And then sends the interpretation that no one else is able to interpret. Brothers and sisters, we see through the book of Daniel, if, you re if you've read or been with us through the first five chapters of Daniel, and you still think that you are something, or I am something, or there is some other human on earth that is really special compared to God, then you have really been distracted while we've been looking at Daniel. Because time and time and time again, God has shown there's no one like me. There's no one that can do the things that I can do. 
none of you are special in comparison to me. Now, he's made us special, but not in the sense of compared to him. We're nothing. So look with me in verse 18. Before he gives the actual interpretation of what the writing on the wall means, God has some other things he wants Daniel to tell the king. We see that in verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. And his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you have made your lords. Uh, you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So here, Daniel says, before I get to the actual thing written on the wall and what it means... Let me give you some reasons that God has sent what he sent and why he gives the message that I'm about to give to you. And so he begins by, by talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's speaking very highly here of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? The, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He killed who he wanted. He kept alive who he wanted. And he raised up who he wanted and humbled who he wanted. And so he just paints this picture of Nebuchadnezzar as just being this, this great king. And now, I tell you this, Belshazzar was probably used to this. If any of you have ever been a teacher... Somewhere where there had been a great, great teacher before, or if you've ever pastored a church where there was a, a great pastor before, you've probably heard about how well Miss So-and-so used to do when she taught this grade at this school, right? Or, or you've heard about that coach that used to coach where you coach who during the glory day. So Belshazzar, he's probably heard about Nebuchadnezzar his whole life. Oh, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar was king, he so-and-so. So Belshazzar has heard all of this, and he probably didn't like that Daniel was bringing it up again in front of the banquet of everybody. But, but Daniel says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar was up here. He was a great king with all sorts of power. But even Nebuchadnezzar found out that even though he was here, that God was way up here. Nebuchadnezzar did anything he wanted to seemingly here on earth. Until he got prideful and started to think of himself as something in the presence of God. And then... God humbled him. And you know what, Belshazzar? You have now lifted yourself up against the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar's here, and God's up here, and you're down here, and you have challenged the God that's up here. I imagine, again, that Belshazzar's probably feeling sick to his stomach. Again, this isn't going well. 
Point two, God sent Daniel to remind the king who was truly in charge. And he does. He says, Nebuchadnezzar used to be in charge, but even when he was in charge, he found out that he wasn't really in charge, but God really was. And now how do you think it would be any different with you, Belshazzar? You knew that that was Nebuchadnezzar's biggest mistake, not humbling himself before God, and yet you still haven't humbled yourself. And you've gone one step further and lifted yourself up and looked for a fight with God. And now, now that I've told you all this, let me tell you what the writing on the wall says. Verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. Parson or peris is just the singular or plural of the same word. That's what was written on the wall, and nobody knew what it meant, but he says, here's what it means. God has numbered your days, and it's in the sense, we all know that our days are numbered, but it's in the sense of the end is getting close. Your kingdom is going to be divided, and you won't be in charge anymore, and Babylon won't be in charge anymore. God's giving this kingdom to somebody completely different. The Medes and the Persians are now going to be in charge. Why? Why has he numbered your days? Why is he dividing the kingdom? He said, because God has weighed you and you have been found wanting. It's as if you literally can picture the old-timey scale system. And so you've got the scales and, and you would put the gold nugget or whatever you want to see the value of on this side and you put a weight on this side so you could see the weight and how much it was worth. And so it's a picture as if God has literally put Belshazzar on a scale and as the scale has balanced, he has weighed him, and he was found to be too light. He was found to be wanting. He had not done what God had for him to do. He was not doing the things that he should do. So for that reason, God had numbered his days, and the kingdom was coming to an end. Now, if you think about the saying that we use often, the writing is on the wall, right? We say that. There's a baseball game or a softball game, and one team scores 12 runs in the first inning, and you say, well, the writing was on the wall. We knew exactly what was about to happen, and this is where that saying comes from, because as soon as it said your days are numbered because you've been weighed and the kingdom has been divided, it was certain that's what's going to happen. This was coming to an end, and not only were his days numbered, but we're told at the end of the chapter in verse 30, that Belshazzar died that very night. That night, he died and the kingdom was lost. It says that the, the next successor, the next king, was Darius the Mede. What that tells us is him being a Mede or Persian, that God fulfilled what he said. It's no longer Babylon that's in charge. There are no Babylonian rulers. The Persians come in and they take over and God uses Cyrus, the king of Persia, to set God's people free. This is a glorious time, an exciting set of verses for God's people, for the Jewish people specifically, because this is when they, the nation that had come and taken them into exile is no longer a nation and they get set free. Exciting and beautiful time. Point three, the king didn't humble himself before God and it cost him everything. Cost him the kingship, cost his people, their kingdom, 
cost everything because he didn't humble himself before God. So, so there's Daniel 5. But the last thing I want to do just before we go is I want to give you a couple of, of I think, really clear application points from this. Right? How does this play out? How does this change my life? What should I do differently because I've seen this? And, and just two of them this morning. There are others from this, but two that I think are really clear. And the first one is the warning against pride. We saw it in chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar thought he was something and God made him lose his mind to humble him. And we see it here. Belshazzar thinks he's something and he challenges God. He thinks he's that good and he challenges God and learns very quickly that he shouldn't have ever challenged God because he lost his life and his kingdom lost their kingdom that very night. Not a good idea. Matthew twenty three twelve says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I know a lot of you, if we're being honest, can we be honest for a minute? You don't have to be honest out loud. We'll be honest in our minds. But if we're being honest, a lot of us would say, you know what, Brother Zach, there are times that I think a lot of myself. There are times that I really think I'm something. I know, we don't want to say it out loud, but there are. There are a lot of times that I sing my praises. There are times that I spend time just thinking about how smart I am or how lucky all these people are to have me around. Y'all ever do that? You don't make me think I'm the only one that's ever done that. There are times that you think that you're the smartest person in the room, and it doesn't matter what room you're in, it doesn't matter who else is there. Right? We do this. We are often prideful people. We think a lot of ourselves, if we're being honest. But I think most of you would say, Brother Zach, even though I think I'm smarter than the rest of these people in here, even though I think I'm better and better at my job than anybody else that does my job, even though I think that people should recognize me more often, I wouldn't ever think enough of myself to challenge God. Brother Zach, I'm not dumb enough to do what Belshazzar here did here and put myself in a place where I'm lifting myself against God. But brothers and sisters, I would tell you that by definition, that if you think that you're the smartest, or you think that you're the best, if you are living a prideful life, that you are lifting yourself against God. If you think that other people should think about you more, and think more about you when they do think about you, if you think other people should sing your praises more often, then you are lifting yourself to the place that only God should be. We should think there's one person that people should think about more often and think more of and think is the smartest and think is the greatest, and that person is God. So when we live prideful, and a good definition of pride in this sense of pride would be self-exaltation. When you exalt yourself, when you... Think more of yourself. When you lift yourself up, when we do that, we are, in essence, in our minds, putting ourselves as a challenge against God. I would say that when you are dealing with pride, when you are living pridefully, what you're really doing is worshiping an idol, and the idol is yourself. Not some statue. It's not something you are worshiping yourself when you think that much of yourself. And specifically for Christians. Now, I'll tell you this. It is not surprising to me when lost people are prideful. 
It's not surprising to me whenever I see lost people posting on Facebook or Twitter and singing their own praises and talking about how great they are. It's not surprising to me. They probably do think they're the smartest. They probably do think they're the best. But for Christians, to me it seems to be an especially egregious thing. When I catch myself thinking too much of myself, it's an especially egregious thing because I know that on my own I'm nothing. That's why I have faith in Christ. That's why I've given my life to Christ. Because I know that without Him, I'm a lost, hopeless sinner who's bound and headed for hell. Who's nothing. That I wouldn't be here without Him. That I wouldn't have a functioning brain without Him. That my body wouldn't work without Him. Without His grace, I would be absolutely nothing. So when we who know better start to think too much of ourselves, it's an especially egregious thing to me. I believe that pride is a lost man's game. And Christians don't need to play it. To me, it's it's kind of like whenever maybe you used to be really good at something, whatever it is, football, basketball, playing an instrument. And so you start to imagine, I'll just use basketball because I have a really good example. You For a while, you were a good basketball player and you thought that you were good. Man, everybody should recognize how good I am at basketball. And then one day you stepped on the court to play one-on-one with Michael Jordan in his prime. Or for our young people, LeBron James, right? And how quickly do you think you would realize that people didn't really need to think that much about you? That you really weren't as good as you thought you were? Well, in the arena of life, we have thought, look how good I am until we see how good God is. And even more than we would be humbled playing one-on-one with Michael Jordan or LeBron James, we should be humbled living life in the presence of God. And so when we, who know that we were created for God's glory, We know that our purpose in life is to praise and worship God and help other people see how great He is so that they will praise and worship God. When we know that that's why we were created, yet we decide, I'm going to live for my praise and my worship instead, I would say it's like spitting in the face of God. It's not bringing out goblets in front of a bunch of people, but it's saying, God, I know that you made me to praise you, but I'm going to live so people will praise me. I'd say it's like spitting in the face of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, we cannot live prideful lives pointing to ourselves, but we must live lives pointing to Christ. The other clear and distinct warning or point from this, I think, is we see it in the interpretation of meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson, and it's this idea that the writing is on the wall, judgment's coming. The Bible warns over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, that God's judgment is coming. It's not a myth. It's not a joke. One day, we will all be judged. We will die and stand before Christ, or Christ will return and we'll stand before Him, but every single person is going to be judged. And this has to be especially scary for lost people, because when He returns, we can use... I'm just going to use... The same analogy that's used here by God when He wrote on the wall of a balance scale. We will all be judged by God, by Christ, and it's going to be as if we're put on a scale. And a lot of us like to think, well, what God's going to do is put my good deeds on one side and my bad deeds on the other, and if my good outweighs my bad, I'll get to go to heaven. But the Bible is very clear that that's not how it works. 
The Bible says what really happens is that on the scale, on one side is our life and on the other side is God's righteousness. And either you are as perfect as God is and you'll get to go to heaven or you are not. And one sin tips the scale so that you'll be judged for all of eternity. And if you're lost, you think that sounds really harsh and really hopeless because I've already sinned at least once. So how in the world could I ever be as perfect as God is perfect? And that's where we have to point to Christ. Because God sent His Son to earth and He lived a perfect life. He never sinned a single time, not one single time. And then went to the cross and on the cross died as a ransom for our souls. Taking the punishment for our sins so that when we respond to Him in faith, our sins are gone. God takes them all the way from us. And now, for those of us that have faith in Christ, that have given our life to Jesus Christ, that are living for His glory and not our glory, those of us that are Christians, now we know that even though we've sinned, that even though we continue to sin, that when we stand before God and are put on those scales in this analogy, that we're going to show to be as perfect as Christ is perfect. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought. That I, who have messed up so many times, and the eyes of God will be perfect enough to get to live in the glory of His presence in heaven forever. Not because of what I did, but because of what Christ did. But if you are lost, then you have to recognize that if you die apart from having faith in Jesus Christ, that your days are numbered. And that you will be weighed, your life will be weighed, and when you're found to be wanting to not have faith in Christ, you will be judged forever and ever because of your sins. Brothers and sisters, the writing is on the wall and judgment is coming. And if you are not prepared for that judgment, then I would urge you to pray and to beg and to plead of God for His forgiveness that you would know that you have to have faith in Jesus Christ before you die or it's not going to be good for you. That we would, as Christians, would not live prideful lives and that we as people would always recognize that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. If y'all would, I would like to pray to those ends as we finish this morning. Y'all join me in this pray. Father God, I am thankful for the picture that we see in Daniel chapter 5, Father, that ashamedly has been our picture many times. Lord, that we have thought way too much of ourselves and that we have lifted ourselves, at least in our own minds, if nowhere else, but we have lifted ourselves to be the place that only you should be. Father, that we have praised ourselves and expected others to praise us much more than we've praised you. Father, let us not be prideful people. Father, it is difficult for us. It is something that we are drawn to in our flesh, Father. Help us to crucify that desire and help us be humble people, Father. We cannot do it apart from you. Lord, help us to daily picture ourselves in comparison to you so that we would always remain humble as we should be humble. Father God, I, I also, Lord, I thank you that judgment is coming one day because, Lord, we do not want evil to remain forever. Father, and we desire that there be vindication. But Father, we also do not desire that anyone would perish, as you do not desire that anyone would perish. Father, we desire that all would come to the place of repentance. So Lord, I pray that we would be pressed to share your gospel with more people. 
to tell them about the forgiveness that they can have in Christ. Lord, this morning we also thank you. We thank you that you sent Christ, that he came and lived a perfect life so that we could be saved, so that we could ever be seen as righteous. Because, Lord, we know without him that we'd never have any hope of being perfect. So, Lord, thank you for that. Father, I do pray that, that anyone that is here that does not recognize that, does not recognize their need, Lord, that does not recognize uh, how much they are wanting in your presence, Father, that you would show that to them, Father, that through the Scriptures and through your Spirit that you would make clear to them their need for you, and, Father, that you would give them in their spirit and their heart a desire to be yours, that they would come to faith in you, Father. Lord, I thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us over and over. Lord, help us to take these things and apply them to our lives that would be more the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.